Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. The ocean might seem vast, but lurking beneath the surface is a lot of microbial life. Now when you think about the ocean, you think of this large, huge expanse of water. But what's happening in the tiny, even a droplet or a teaspoon of ocean water can tell you a lot about the health of reefs, the thriving ocean currents, or the way all of the oceans are connected together. This week we look at microbial life across our oceans and what can tell us about our planet. We think about the ocean as some large mass, which can seem at times really empty. Now lurking beneath the waves might be all kinds of fish, whales, squid, you name it, lurking underneath the surface. And we think about these inhabiting coral reefs or other seagrass areas. And that's normally what we consider when we consider the ocean. Or maybe you think of those deep sea underthermal vents or maybe right at the bottom where those crustaceans or other seafloor dwelling creatures hang out. But there's also a lot of going on in the ocean on a level that you can't actually see. But if you were to take a teaspoon of water from somewhere in the ocean and then analyze it in a laboratory, you would find an incredible amount of life. And that's exactly what researchers from the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences have done. And they built together something they called the Global Ocean Reference Genomes Tropics or Gorg Tropics database. And inside this database is a huge collection based on their analysis of teaspoons of water from across the world. And when they've done this, they found thousands upon thousands of different forms of microbial life, all unique, living in this water. And from this little picture, from a teaspoon of the ocean, they can start to build a large database of all the life that might be hiding out there, and use it to understand the way that the oceans mix all of this together. Now this was published recently in the journal Cell, which is a big journal focusing on biology, and it focused on research that was done together with researchers from MIT, along with the University of California, San Diego. And basically, if you want to build a massive database of all life in the ocean, the first thing you have to do is collect a lot of samples of the ocean and take it all the way back to the lab. And when the researchers put these little samples under the microscopes and began to do genetic sequencing on all of these different microbes that they found, the results were incredibly surprising. Not only was there a lot of life, and they knew there would be a reasonable chunk of life, just on a level that you know you can't normally see. That's what microbiology is often about. But they also found thousands of species that were unique, genetically unique. In fact, out of all of the species that they found in these samples of teaspoons of water that they took, very few were similar enough to be considered the same species, which means that there's an insane amount of biodiversity in the microbial life in the ocean. That's only from the small-scale samples that they've done. Now, they've built this massive, what they call the Gorg Tropics, this ocean database of microbial life. And one of the reasons that they've done that is to examine the different levels of biodiversity from place to place. For example, if you take some teaspoons of water from the Sargosa Sea, near where Bigelow Labs are, you'll find around 6,000 individual different microbes inside that one teaspoon of sample. And that's just from a couple of tests they did. When you do genetic analysis on these microbes, they actually only found that even basically on the gene level, only about a fifth of those genes were common amongst other tropical waters. So if you compare these microbes to 
other microbes from other tropical seas, you would actually find them not actually having a lot in common. Which means that microbial life around the globe gets transported way around in the ocean currents, gets spread far and wide, and you actually get up with a really weird mix, with no one concentration that's unique to a particular area. The researchers point out, including one of the lead researchers on the study, Romanus Stepanakis, the senior author on this study states, in the same way that we think of New York as a melting pot, every teaspoon of the ocean is a microbial melting pot. The ocean is huge. It's amazing how complex and ecological evolutionary processes take place in each tiny drop. And this is really something that's quite remarkable to think of. Even something that would seem as empty as the ocean, as vast and unchanging as the ocean can seem. In each different port of the ocean, each different tiny teaspoon or droplet that you look at, you will find unique forms of life happening on a micro scale. And that is incredibly fascinating because it goes to show that even if we did genetic analysis today and started to build this database, we expect that to grow and change and change over time as more and more samples are taken and more and more are analyzed to this level of detail. But why? Why do you care about the microbial life in the oceans? Well, this genetic information can tell us a lot about the ecology. For example, they also can help us find and understand small forms of life. There's a lot of microbes that are out there that are photosynthetic. These are microbes that eat in sunlight and produce oxygen or other byproducts through the process of photosynthesis. And these kind of things are incredibly important for the health of reefs, for feeding all kinds of species that live off these different microbes, but also for changing the chemical composition of the water and the environment around them. If it wasn't for microbial life, we wouldn't have developed an oxygen and nitrogen rich atmosphere that's breathable to humans. It actually took a lot of microbes to convert that way back in early Earth's history. So we need to understand the role microbes play because even though they're small, they can have a really large impact on the environmental condition of an ocean, especially when it comes to understanding how oceans change with the results of climate change. But another example of trying to do all this genetic sequencing on all these different forms of life is that it can be a great boon for researchers who are always looking for new and interesting ways to use these forms of microbes or the specific genes inside of them. For example, different types of microbes may have genes that could be useful for new forms of antibiotics or anti-cancer medicines or even producing new materials through an organic process. All of these things can be learned by studying these microbes in the oceans. And since there's so many unique types out there, it's a great randomizer of new and successful ideas that can be mined for information. But first, you just need to take a lot of teaspoon samples of the ocean and take it back to the lab to analyze. And that's why this study is so powerful as a starting point. It's building a tool. So a lead study author, Julia Brown from Bigelow Laboratory states, one of the main goals with the Gorg Initiative was to produce a powerful resource for the marine microbiology research community, that scientists will be able to use this data set in follow-up studies to answer questions that no one has ever thought of yet. And that's exactly why researchers do this type of work, building large databases of genes or microbes so that later researchers can build off this foundation and uncover entirely hereto undiscovered pathways or ideas, whether that be from ocean science, environmental modelling, or even new antibiotics. This is some great research from a number of different universities published in the journal
Now we've just spoken about diversity in the oceans through microbial life, but microorganisms also play a really essential role into the health and protections of coral reefs. You can learn a lot about the health of a reef system by studying the amount of microbes and the types of microbes present in those areas. And that's exactly why researchers from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, as well as Universidad de la Habana from Cuba, have been investigating the seawater from 25 different reefs across Cuba and the United States Florida Keys. And all of these reefs have varying amounts of protection, either through conservation areas or also through amounts of visitation from people on snorkeling trips or diving, or maybe even agricultural runoff and human activity. And by understanding the way in which humans can interact with the biodiversity of a region, even down to the microbial level, can really help monitor and see how the reef structure itself and all of the creatures that live on the reef can change. Now we often think about a reef dying as the coral itself getting blanched and dying off, or maybe the fish and the herbivores that help live around that area dying off. But there's also a lot of diverse group of marine microbiology that's going on as well. And a healthy reef provides home to all kinds of things. It includes even small microscale herbivores that help chomp on and eat algae to prevent algae overflowing and overgrowing all the areas around the coral. So for example, if you take away algal grazers, like maybe a herbivorous fish or some sea urchin, all of that can lead to an explosion in macroalgae, these large amounts of algae blooms, more or less. And that's a problem because that dumps a lot of organic carbon into the water and can lead to the degradation of the reef. So just a simple act of removing some of these algal grazers, herbivorous fish or sea urchins, can mean to more algae taking control and leading to a less and less healthy reef. And this is one of the reasons why these researchers were trying to study the health and behavior of these reefs across the region around Cuba and the Florida Keys. Now, one of the big things that they found is when you look at a certain reef in Cuba, the Jardines de la Arena, the Gardens of the Queen, it's a large, an incredibly large protected reef area in the Caribbean. And it's a complex ecosystem with a lot of islands, small in size, and a lot of mangrove forests and coral reefs. And it stretches for around 50 miles off the southern coast of Cuba. Now, this area is incredibly protected from both human activity as well as any type of agriculture or runoff around it. And these protected offshore reefs provide habitat and feeding grounds for huge numbers of fish, like sharks or groupers. Now, interestingly, when they look at the microbiological condition of the water in those areas, they found low concentrations of nutrients, but a high concentration of some photosynthetic bacterium, like Plocolococcus, which is a photosynthetic bacterium that likes to thrive in waters that are low in nutrients. And this is particularly interesting because it means that even though you might consider these areas problematic because they have low nutrient levels in their seawater, actually it's great for some types of bacterium. And that's good because there are a lot of creatures that eat this bacterium, which is why it's important for the health of the reef. And one of the reasons why the Arena Serena doesn't have any of these problems with bleaching or destruction of the coral is that Cuba doesn't really have a large-scale industrial agriculture that dumps out onto the reef, which is something that can happen off the Florida Keys or even here in Australia near the Great Barrier Reef. All that agricultural runoff, nutrient runoff and sedimentation flowing out from all those farms 
down into the waterways, down into the creeks, out onto the reef, can lead to all kinds of strange things happening to the reef itself. Which is important, so you get a nice little case study here where the Cajidina stellarina is sort of protected. It's buffered by these mangroves and seagrass meadows that lie between the islands of Cuba and the rest of this Marge reef system. And that's particularly interesting because if you compare it to other reef areas, even in the Florida Keys, or even an area on Cuba like the Los Janeros Reef in just further along, it doesn't have that much protection by either the seagrass or the mangroves. And it means that humans get in there quite a bit. There's a lot of fishing, a lot of tourism, a lot of diving. And all that means is that the oceans near there contain higher, higher concentrations of organic carbon and nitrogen. A lot of these coming from either human activity or agricultural runoff. So it might seem strange, but these high nutrient soils can be runoff into the waterways and then impact the health of the reefs. And this is something here in Australia we're very familiar with. So it's interesting because by studying the reefs that are healthy and are thriving, like the Hadina Serena, well, you can see how that succeeds compared to other reef systems across the world. And what's essential there is this protection of the reef itself from direct contact to the runoff by large areas of seagrass, large reef systems and islands that sort of shelter and protect the reef. But not everywhere is fortunate enough to have that conditions. So here you get almost a clear case study of how high nutrient runoff can impact the health of a reef and what we should do to try and avoid it. But it also helps us understand what happens in these high nutrient areas and ways we can look and test if the water is still healthy. And in this case, we can by actually looking at the microbial communities that are thriving and living in those conditions, where you see a reef system that has microbial communities that are diverse with lots and lots of different photosynthetic microbes. Well, those reefs are often the ones associated with lower nutrient and carbon levels, which means overall they're healthier. The ones that are impacted by human activity, by runoff, by visitation or by illegal fishing, all of those areas tend to have pretty poor levels of diversity in microbes, as well as pretty poor amounts in total numbers of these microbes in the reef systems, basically because they're not able to survive in the conditions. So this is an interesting idea to think about, ways of measuring the macro health of a large reef system like the Great Barrier Reef here in Australia or any other reef system like the Adinas de la Arena near Cuba, by actually studying the amounts, quantities, concentrations and diversity present in the microbes in the ocean. And you can learn a lot by studying such a small thing and looking at the large macro trends that it helps indicate. And this is some great information published in the journal Environmental Microbiology that can help form and guide decision-making processes to try and protect different reef systems across the world as reef managers and people who are in charge of ecosystems try to figure out ways to help their local areas survive the changes that are coming as climate changes across our globe. This is some great work from key authors such as Laura Weber and Patricia Gonzalez-Diaz, published in the journal Environmental Microbiology. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about microbial life in the oceans, just how diverse it is and efforts to try and categorise it, and what that can tell us about the health of our reef and ecosystems in our waters. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.